We're going to continue to read in Joel by reading part of chapter 2. I'm going to have Jim come up and do that in a few moments. I have some introductory things here. I hope that you have read through Joel a time or two in this last week, um, and you're getting a sense of the flow of the book. Um, Actually, although it's divided into three chapters, uh, I think the best way to divide the book is simply in two parts. Uh, Chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 17, would be the first part, and that has to do mainly with the judgment on the people of God for turning from God. And then chapter 2, verse 18, to the end of the book, has to do with the deliverance and salvation of God's people through the outpouring of His Spirit that would be upon His repentant people, and then the judgment of the nations for the treatment of His people. We've said that just as kind of a broad way of looking at the book, we should look for the government of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. That might be three things you can kind of zero in on as you read through the book. So in Joel, we see God's government of this world revolving around his desires for his people and the good of his creation. We also see a great example of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Not only nature, like the locusts and the drought, but also the nations are instruments of God's judgment upon his sinful people. But then God turns to the nations as objects of his wrath, objects of his wrath for the way that they treated his people. These are amazing things to think about, how God works in this world. And he also judges the nations for the way they've devastated his world. Uh, Be looking for that. That's kind of a minor theme as you uh, go through the book. But uh, we know this, that even nature suffers because of the sin of humanity. And you'll see that in the book. So, just to point this out, he uses the nations to judge his disobedient people, and then he judges them for what they've done to his people. Judges the nations for what they've done to his people. One of the things that I ended with last time was just asking this question, how does God judge nations today? How does God judge nations today? And this is a somewhat difficult subject, but I think there's a few principles we can glean from this book of Joel, and even though Joel was speaking in an Old Testament, Old Covenant context, we can still see some principles here. And I I just give credit for some of the people that I read concerning this. Some of this is from Erwin Lutzer, 
pastor at Moody Church, and John Piper. I've kind of adapted some of these thoughts from those two men. So we're talking about how does God judge nations today? What are some of the principles involved in this? The first principle is that God still blesses or curses nations in accordance with their moral character. Even though there are no God-ordained theocracies in our world today, that does not mean that God is not involved in the governments of this world. Just to give you some examples, let's keep your place in Joel and turn to Acts chapter 17. Just a very clear statement of God's involvement in the world in, the, in terms of the nations. Acts chapter 17. Paul speaking here on Mars Hill, and he says this. <clears throat> Uh, Verse 26, and he, that is God, made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And here's the part, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You see a nation that's uh, in existence now or was in existence, it it was there because of God's appointed time. And the boundaries of that nation, how far they... Uh, advanced in terms of the size or uh, setting up their borders, the boundaries of their habitation were appointed, determined by God. Um, Then turn back to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. I mean, there's many, many verses on this, but these were just a couple to... See the principle. Psalm 47 and verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. So he's he's reigning, he's ruling over the nations. He's involved in all that goes on in the nation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 15 says that Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So, God is very much involved in the governments of this world, the nations. We, we may not be able to readily discern how he's doing things in the nations and, and how he's controlling things, Uh, And to say that we are insightful enough to directly link certain national sins to divinely ordained national disasters, I think, is presumptuous. You'd have to be a prophet like Joel to do that. He he was able; God gave him that insight. But but for us to say, well, that that city uh, got in trouble, had this natural disaster because of the casino or something like that. You just can't do that. Actually, we know that the judgments of God are often unsearchable and unfathomable. We're told that in Romans chapter 11. Nevertheless, 
the book of Joel clearly links the sins of Israel and the sins of the nations to divine retribution, even though in our day we can't always see how that's being worked out. I thought of that portion of a poem by Longfellow where he says, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness he grinds he all. He's not going to miss anything. We may not, we, we don't understand how he's doing it or why it's taking as long as it seems. It seems long to us sometimes for judgment to come, but he's not missing anything. With exactness grinds he all. So that was the first principle. The second principle is that God judges nations on the amount of light and opportunity they are given. In Joel, we see God judging his people in accordance with their keeping or breaking his special covenant relationship with them. They had more light than the nations and were being judged accordingly. Later in chapter 3 in Joel, we'll see that God judges the nations like Tyre, the cities like Tyre and Sidon, on the basis of the law written on the heart. Things like, well, let's turn over there just real quick if you're in Joel. In verse three, or chapter three, verse three, it's talking about the nations here. They have also cast lots for my people, traded traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. They'd taken people captive, and then traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. What that's saying is that these people were doing evil things and they didn't need a special word from God to know that this was wrong. The light of conscience tells people that such actions are evil. That type of thing, people know that's wrong. It's written on the heart. But here's the amazing thing. In the New Testament, we we see that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for even Tyre and Sidon than for other cities which were exposed to the greater light of the ministry of Jesus. That's in Matthew 11. So here he's talking about Tyre and Sidon being accountable because of the light that they have. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, when I go to a city and speak to them, they're more accountable than even Tyre and Sidon. Since there are no covenant nations now, God judges the nations in accordance with the law written on the heart and their exposure to truth. Actually, there is a covenant kingdom now, but it's not of this world. And we'll talk about that more in the future. The point here is that the nations are accountable for the light that they have. Kind of along that same line, it seems that God often tolerates sinful nations up to a point and then brings judgment. I think this was pointed out recently. Maybe it was Charles. 
that uh, pointed out that God did not let the Israelites go into Canaan and destroy the people and take the land for 400 years. And the reason? Because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. What that means is that there's a certain level of evil that God allowed until it was to such a point that it was right for him to allow Israel to go in and wipe out the Canaanite tribes. God even told his people that they should not say, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Rather, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So the point is that God often tolerates sin up to a point, sinful nations up to a point before he brings judgment. Another principle, God sometimes uses exceedingly evil nations to judge those that are less evil. Jesus brings that out, but also uh, here in Joel. Joel was warning the professing people of God that they were going to be, there was going to be an invasion coming upon them for their sin. And this invasion was going to come from wicked and ruthless armies, other nations surrounding them, that would come up against them, against God's covenant people, unless they repented. These are, these are amazing things, but God, these are the ways that God works sometimes, using an exceedingly, exceedingly evil nation to judge some that are less evil. A fourth, fourth principle is that when God judges a nation, often the righteous suffer along with those who sin. You've got to realize that as Joel's writing these things, he's suffering. He's suffering the effects of this locust plague. He's suffering the effects of this drought, along with everybody else. Now, it is good to remember that uh, for the righteous, it's a suffering that is for their correction, not their condemnation. It's for their refining, not their ruin. It's for their discipline, not their destruction. But often the righteous suffer along with those who had sinned and when God judges nations. The fifth principle is that God's judgments take various forms. Sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're spiritual. For instance, God may send a physical famine like we hear of here in Joel, or he may send a spiritual famine of not hearing the word of God. That's in Amos very similar situation, a a famine of not hearing God's word. And this is what Romans 1 brings out when, when Paul says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He says that three times in Romans chapter 1. And I think this happens not only to individuals, but it happens to nations that disregard the light that God gives them. God gives them over to greater evil, to greater darkness. 
gives him over to further darkness. And I have to say that I think that's happening in the United States. This is a frightening thing. The lights are going out on the way to hell for both men and nations. The last principle is that God sometimes reverses announced judgments, as we shall read about today. Now, before we go on and read this section of scripture that we want to deal with today, I'd like to give a couple examples from our history. I mentioned that we're under the judgment of God in the sense that God is giving us over to further darkness and depravity. But I want to give some examples from our history here in the United States of leaders who have taken at least some of these principles concerning God's judgment of nations to heart. Again, I would say there's only been one true theocracy in the history of the world, which was the Jewish people under the Old Covenant. Nevertheless, at certain times, even in our history here in America, some leaders have seen the need for calling the people to national humiliation and confession of national sins. i just bring out a couple of examples here. And I, I need to summarize these. I had them written out, but it got too long, these, these pronouncements uh, from the, these presidents were somewhat lengthy. But the first one has to do with our second president, John Adams. He actually declared a day of fasting and prayer twice, once in March of 1798 and again in March of 1799. And it went along the lines of this, that we were actually in danger from external enemies, but he also saw the fact that the nation was becoming sinful in their attitudes and actions. And he says, I hereby recommend a day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that the citizens call to mind our numerous offenses against the Most High God, confess them before him with sincere penitence, imploring his pardoning mercy to the great Mediator and Redeemer, and that through the grace of his Holy Spirit we may be disposed and enabled to yield a more suitable obedience. So, recognizing our, our national sin, asking God to forgive them, asking God to cleanse us, and giving his Holy Spirit that we might obey him as we should. Amazing. This is the President of the United States. A little more than 60 years later, President Lincoln called the nation to repentance. Now, this was in the middle of the Civil War. And he said this, Whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with the assured hope that in genuine repentance it will, it will lead to mercy and pardon. 
He goes on talking about this is what the Holy Scriptures have told us. And uh, I'm just trying to summarize here. He says, our problem is we've forgotten God. We have forgotten God. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. So he says it behooves us to confess our national sins. He wasn't wasn't just saying this to the South. He was saying this to the the nation as a whole. It behooves us to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. So um, just a couple of examples that show how far we've fallen. But we better get back to the book of Job here. Joel, I keep saying Job. Joel. Joel tells us of the government of God, which involves his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is a just and holy God. He's a sovereign of his creation, and his government is altogether always altogether righteous. But as we shall see as we read in this chapter, God's government also involves grace and compassion for those that will turn to him. The government of God, the grace of God, the glory of God. We'll see something of the grace of God here today. So that was a long introduction, but I want to have Jim come up now and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Now, I said the natural dividing place is uh, between chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, but I just want him to read three verses after that division to get a feel for the change, why I think that's good to have uh, recognize a real uh, division there between verses 17 and 18. It gives you a feel for that just by reading a few of these verses. So Jim's going to Jim's going to come read chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Joel chapter 2. <clears throat> Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations." A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops 
of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people and sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Deliver the Lord, then the Lord will, del- will be zealous for the, his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army from far from you. And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. And its vanguard into the eastern sea. And its rearguard into the western sea. And its stench will arise. And its foul smell will come up. For it has done great things. Well, as we pointed out last time, one thing you can see in this section, in the prior section, is the seriousness of sin. How serious God takes sin amongst his people. 
consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, set them apart to seek me because of the impending judgment that comes because of that will come because of sin except you repent. In chapter 1, we saw the devastating plague of locusts that came upon the land. This was an actual historical event, and it was a manifestation of the judgment of God upon his professing people because of their sin. It was such an overwhelming plague, such a devastation, that Joel says there's nothing like it that you've seen in the past. It was something that the people of Joel's day were to tell their descendants about. But more than that, it was to show them their need to get right with God before worse judgment would come upon them by invading armies. Not an invading army of locusts, but an invading army of enemy soldiers. And this greater judgment that was coming was referred to as the day of the Lord. One of the things I ask you to just kind of zero in on as you read through Joel this past week was the subject of the day of the Lord. So we want to talk about this a little now. Let's just look at a few of the verses. Chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as, a, as destruction from the Almighty. And then chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Verse 11. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Then verse 30 and 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then verse, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. So, Joel is saying that judgment is coming, and he calls it, he equates it with this day of the Lord. So we want to turn our attention to that theme that Joel has here in his uh, prophecy, the day of the Lord. The first thing that I would mention, and I, we brought this up last time, that this book is primarily a book of Hebrew poetry. 
So I want to point out some things from the first two verses of this chapter. Joel could have said something in very straightforward language like, go tell the people that judgment's coming. But instead, he puts it in poetic form. Just uh, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill. Why does he do that? Well, because plain prose sentences are weak compared to the way Joel presents things. He's wanting this message to come home to the people in a strong and powerful way. Um, Blow a, he says it again in verse 15 of chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children. <clears throat> this gets his point across far more forcefully and in a more memorable way by putting it in this poetic form. Now, we don't recognize the poetry so much, but it is there. It's not, the Hebrews did not primarily use poetry that rhymed. It had a structure, but it wasn't a rhyming type poetry. Now, I just thought of this in relationship to trying to bring this home to us. Actually, one of the reasons that Deanne and Mason are using songs for the children to do their memory work is that it's easier to memorize when you put something in that kind of a form. It's easier to memorize that way. Uh, this man, Gordon Fee, who has this book on uh, understanding the Bible, um, says this. In ancient Israel, poetry was widely appreciated as a means of learning. Many things that were important enough to be remembered were considered appropriate for composition in poetry. Just as we can reproduce from memory the words of songs much more easily than we can reproduce a sentence from a book or a speech, the Israelites found it relatively simple to commit to memory and to recall things composed in poetry. Making good use of this helpful phenomena in an age where reading and writing were rare skills. Now, you've got to remember these, these things were written when reading and writing were very rare skills. And besides that, the private ownership of written documents was virtually unknown. They couldn't just pick up the book of Joel off their shelf. Private ownership of written documents was virtually unknown. God spoke through his prophets largely by poems. He had a reason for doing it this way. It emphasized the truths and it made them more memorable. One thing I would point out here from just the verse 1 of chapter 2, this is something that's common in uh, Hebrew poetry. It's something called parallelism. You say something twice in a little different form 
to emphasize the point. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Zion and the holy mountain are synonymous. This is a synonymous parallelism to point, to just drive home the point, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy hill. Uh, so the second line reinforces or restates what was there in the first line. It's a parallelism. That's a, you're reading poetry. So you might, you, we, we're not used to thinking this way. We just read it. But this is Hebrew poetry, and that's what he's doing there, even in that first, first verse of chapter 2. There's actually a different form of parallelism. It's called antithetical, where the second line says the opposite of the first line in order to help emphasize the point. You see that a lot in the Proverbs. Let me just read you one proverb like this. It's, it comes up over and over in the Proverbs, but <clears throat> Proverbs is a book of poetry. And so it's not surprising that we find this parallelism in uh, Proverbs. And we're looking at an antithetical parallelism right now in chapter 19, verse 16. He who keeps the commandments keeps his soul, but he who is careless in his ways will die. See, he's bringing out the opposite. It's a two-part truth here, but the second part it brings out the opposite of the first part. It contrasts with the first. Uh, you see this in Joel, if you go back uh, in Joel, in the section we read today, Joel chapter 2, uh, verse 3, where he says, the land is like the garden of Eden before them, before this army of devastation comes. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. So it's a, a parallelism, a contrast, you see. And it's, a, it's poetic. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. It's just a poetic way, you see, a strong way of saying there's going to be terrible devastation. So what about this day of the Lord? I was kind of a little sidetracked there just to point out something of the Hebrew, the poetic nature of this book. But what about this day of the Lord? We, As we read through the verses, we saw that it involves the destru destruction from the Almighty, that it's said to be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, that it's a great and awesome day. We also learn that it will involve the display of wonders in the sky and on the earth, and that great multitudes will be in the valley of decision on that day, which, by the way, when we get to it, as you read our reading through uh, chapter 3, in the weeks to come. I think that this Valley of Decision is actually the same as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You might just kind of file that away and notice that when you read through chapter 3. So, some of the characteristics of this Day of the Lord, but there's, there's one that you may have noticed that I skipped 
as we've read through there. And it has to do with what Joel says concerning the timing of this day of the Lord. He repeatedly says that it is near. The day of the Lord is near. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And then chapter 3, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So what I want to do now is try to give us... uh, a feel for this phrase, the day of the Lord. And one of our problems is, is that as New Testament believers, we almost automatically think that the day of the Lord refers to the end of the world. Uh, And it's not wrong in the sense that it does refer to that, but that's not all it refers to. And I say as New Testament believers, we think that way. In fact, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord is sometimes called the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, but there's many references like that. So, here's the question. How could Joel say to his hearers that the day of the Lord was near almost 3,000 years ago. One explanation, which is sometimes given, is that God, that for God one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. That's in Second Peter 3.8. Uh, that's obviously scriptural, but I don't think that's the main thing that should come to mind here in Joel as we read these verses about the day of the Lord. What should come to mind is one of the important things to understand about how we should read prophecy. And we started to bring this up last time. In the prophetic portions of Scripture, we should keep in mind that these words were spoken into a then-current situation which had a near-at-hand fulfillment and possibly a number of other partial fulfillments before the final fulfillment. So you have a situation, you have a near-at-hand fulfillment, and then you have maybe a number of those before the final fulfillment. In other words, in prophetic scriptures, there's often a present situation with a near fulfillment and then a far future final fulfillment. Now by present, I mean the people at that time when Joel was speaking. By near, I mean something that would happen within the soon coming generations of those people but these present and near manifestations of the prophecy were only partial fulfillments. The distant future fulfillment at the end of the age is the ultimate and final fulfillment. And here's, here's the important, important point. Don't let me, I don't want to lose you here. I'm trying to help you understand how to read this book. Here's the important, important point. The final consummation language, sun and moon growing dark, clouds, 
blood, fire, columns of smoke, stars shaken from their courses, is used to characterize the near future fulfillments. The final, the final consummation language is often used also in relation to those near future fulfillments. How can that be, or why would that be done that way? Well, because all judgments in time are images or types of the cataclysmic final judgment of eternity. All judgments in time are pictures, they're shadows, they're images of what is yet to come at the final fulfillment. So similar descriptive language is used. Often judgments separated by thousands of years were not clearly distinguished in the prophet's presentation. The, the similar language was used for a near future and a far future fulfillment. What that means is that there can be repeated patterns of given a given prophecy event leading up to the final ultimate fulfillment. Now here's the way one commentator put it. Modern Christian readers should avoid interpreting every reference to clouds and darkness or the day of the Lord as the literal end of the world. Such a reading of the book springs from a false premise that the day of the Lord has a single future reference or fulfillment, has many near fulfillments before that final fulfillment. So this near this, this present, this near, this future aspect of prophecy is an important thing to remember as we read prophetic portions of Scripture. And this goes not just for these prophets in the Old Testament. It also applies to New Testament prophetic portions. Uh, for instance, Jesus' comments about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age in Matthew 24. There was a near fulfillment of that. It came in 70 A.D., just a few years after Jesus spoke about the, that not one stone would be on top of another. There was a near fulfillment of that, but also when you read through Matthew 24, you see much in that chapter that's also a far future fulfillment, the final fulfillment. So you have to distinguish those things, and sometimes it's not that easy. Uh, again, this is especially important in the book of Revelation. There we see the Apostle John emphasizing the time is near. Over and over he says the time is near. As you read through the book. Because much of what was revealed to him was about to take place in the next 300 years under the terrible persecution of, from the Roman Empire. Though also other parts of that book, the book of Revelation, clearly have to do with the final end time judgment so again that is that principle you have to realize that there's a near future fulfillment and a far future fulfillment I mean even for John there in the book of Revelation there's a near future fulfillment in, in uh, 70 AD of some of the destruction that was coming there's also it's still future for us some of what he was talking about so Let's get back. We can't go into those sections in the New Testament. We'll get back to Joel here. 
Thus far, the references we've looked at in Joel concerning the day of the Lord point to a day of judgment of evil. But there is another aspect of the day of the Lord. It's not only a day of destruction for God's enemies, it's a day of deliverance and salvation for his repentant people. Trying to understand what this day of the Lord is. In fact, part of the deliverance of God's people often involves the destruction of their enemies. They're tied together. Evil must be put down so that righteousness can flourish. So the day of the Lord encompasses both of those things, you see. Destruction and deliverance. The fearful presentation of God's wrath is followed by words of love and compassion to those who would turn back to him. We see that again. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And as we get into the second half of chapter 2 and the last verses of chapter 3, Joel concludes his book with a marvelous description of the future blessing on God's true people. And it has to do with the day of the Lord. So both of those things are included. So here's, I'm going to try to give you a definition here. In general, we could say that the day of the Lord is a time of God's special interventions into the course of world events for judgment and or salvation. God's special intervention in the course of events of this world for judgment and or salvation. One commentator put it this way, the day of the Lord designates a divine disruption in the order in order to impose God's will in the affairs of humanity. So a disruption of the flow of things to impose God's will. And it can be both judgment, wrath, and mercy. Destruction of the wicked, deliverance of the righteous. Let me, let me just show you from one other prophet how that works out. Just just to get a feel for this. If you turn forward three or four books of these minor prophets, you get to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. And in chapter 1, verses 14, 14 and 15, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So there you get the wrath part. That's obviously part of the day of the Lord. But if you keep reading and get to chapter 3, and I'm just picking out a couple here. You could pick out other places. Chapter 3, verse 11. Speaking about that same day, in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalted ones, and I will never again be haughty, and they and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Now look at verse twelve. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. And then if you skip down to verse 16, 
in that day. Again, we're talking about the day of the Lord. It will be said of Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So, you see, both destruction to God's enemies is part of the the day of the Lord and deliverance of God's people. Tremendous deliverance of God's people is involved in this thing called the day of the Lord. It does seem that the emphasis in the prophets when they presented their prophecies was on the judgment aspect. And I think this was because their main concern was to bring their hearers to repentance. Exhorting their hearers to get right with God. In fact, I think we could say that the primary objective of the prophets was transformation of the people that heard them, not to give information about the future. Transformation, not information. Their primary desire was to see the generation in which they were speaking turn to God, not give them a forecast of the far future or details about the end of the world. So I need to draw this to a close. This is what they were aiming at, transformation, not information. And although I'm not a prophet, my desire for each of us here today is not simply information. I know I've given a lot of information today, trying to give you a feel for the poetic nature of of, uh, what we're looking at here. But my primary desire is not simply to give you information, but rather for transformation. And that can only happen by the Spirit of God using the truth of God to bring us to genuine repentance and faith. That's what God uses, what the Holy Spirit uses, the Spirit of God using the truth of God to bring people to repentance and faith. We must rightly understand God's truth and then rightly apply it to our lives. And again, that's why we're digging into Joel to, to rightly understand this book. God will not bless our wrong understanding of his word, no matter how sincere we are. There's a lot of people with a wrong understanding of God's word. God's not going to bless that, even if it's sincere. On the other hand, God will not bless even a right understanding of his word if we will not walk in it. Joel was dealing with a people who had an exterior, external, religious righteousness, but whose hearts were not right with him. This is what he's saying. Rend your heart, not your garments. They they made a show of their repentance by rending garments. He said, that's not what God wants. Rend your heart, not your garments. Well, we can do that so easy, make that external show of religion, and righteousness. Well, the point that Joel's making is that God is going to bring judgment on that type 
of lifestyle. Does God still do this? Does God still call his people to repentance in the new covenant? Well, obviously he does. All you have to do is read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation concerning the seven churches that are mentioned there. These churches were experiencing God's judgment and needed to repent. Most of them needed to do what Joel told the people of his day to do. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. I'm trying to say is that this is a message for the church. Even though it was given in the old covenant situation, this is still a message for the new covenant church. There are times amongst God's professing people for solemn assemblies because of sin. Actually, if you've been here long enough, you've know, you know that we've had some of those times because of sin in the church, sin in our midst. And I would say that uh, as a church, we've had some of those times and surely we will need to have some of those solemn assemblies again. If we're, if we're walking with God, if we're seeking Him, if we're sensitive to what His Spirit is saying to the church, there will be those times. So, Joel is very relevant for us as a nation and as a spiritual nation, a spiritual kingdom. In both senses, this book is very relevant. Next week, we look at the marvelous message that Joel has that he saw yet in the future, but is now the reality in which we can and should live today, and that is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. He saw this in the future, and it was quite far in the future when he prophesied it. But for us, it's a present reality, the outpouring of the Spirit. You see that in chapter 2, verses 28 through 31. So hopefully, as you read through Joel again this week, make a special uh, point to look at this portion because we want to spend our time primarily on that next time, uh, this outpouring of the, the Spirit.